Happy uh, belated Thanksgiving. I was thinking uh, if there was going to be a post-Thanksgiving rapture, then the Lord would have to use extra energy to get us all off the ground. (laughs) Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis chapter 14 and verse 17. The title of our message this morning is Giving God's Way. Giving God's Way. This time of the year we think about giving and gifts. How do we do that God's way? Well, we have a tremendous example of that in our passage uh, this morning. Just to give you and remind you the big picture of the book of Genesis, we have completed chapters 1 through 11, featuring four events, creation, fall, flood, and national dispersion, where a promise has been traced. That promise is the coming Messiah, who was revealed in Genesis 3, verse 15. He continues to be traced through that entire section right down to the patriarch Abraham. Abraham, of course, is very special and very significant because it is through Abraham that a very special nation is going to start. And that nation, of course, is the nation of Israel. God in Genesis 12 through 50 is creating and he is preserving the nation of Israel. And so the calling of Abraham is actually a very big deal. And we've traced God's dealings with Abraham, chapters 12 through 14. And the last time we were together, we saw this man, Abram, win a stunner. He, he won an upset. The number 64 team in the nation just wiped out or defeated the number one team in the first round of the NCAA playoffs. Where Abram was essentially invaded by a conglomeration of nations to the east. And in the process, they swept away his nephew Lot. And Abram with 318 men and a ragtag three-man confederacy in addition to the 318 pursued this eastern power and subdued them and rescued Lot and rescued his wealth and brought back with him many, many prisoners of war. It's a, a battle he should not have won, particularly as a 75-year-old man. But he did because of God's strength. I will, before we leave that story, that historical event, and comment on what happened following that historical event, I will make you aware of the fact that your higher critics have written off this story a long time ago. They say a civilization like this and an army like this and a battle like this, there's no archaeological evidence for it. And this fits nicely into something that we've talked about throughout this series called the JEDP hypothesis. 
It's the idea that the book of Genesis really wasn't written by Moses, but it was written and pieced together by people living long after the fact, relying upon fables and things like that. Genesis 14, they attack, the higher critics do regularly, because they say there is no archaeological evidence for a military like this or a battle like this or a civilization like this all the way back in the time of Abraham, 2000 B.C. I'll just draw your attention to this note in the Ryrie Study Bible. Charles Ryrie correctly says, though some have dismissed this chapter as being an historical impossibility, Archaeological discoveries demonstrated the evidence or existence of a flourishing civilization in today what we call the land of Israel between the 21st and 19th centuries B.C. and of the savage destruction of cities at, that, at the end of that time period, close quote. The interesting thing is when higher critics develop the JEPD theory, largely in Germany, in Europe, in the 19th century, they just did not have the archaeological evidence that we have today. And many people believe, including myself, that if those higher critical liberals had had the archaeological evidence that we have today, and they tried to espouse this nonsense called the JEPD theory, which, by the way, you're going to hear about on Mysteries of the Bible, A&E, and all of these kinds of stations where they just give the liberal perspective and they never invite a competent conservative on to counter the evidence. Had all of those people had the archaeological evidence that we have today, their theory in the 19th century would have never gotten off the ground. For one thing, they try to argue that we all know there was no such thing as, the, as writing in the time of Moses. There's no example of a human language. Well, they didn't have the discovery of the Code of Hammurabi, which is a pre-Mosaic legal code predating Moses by about 400 years, which evidences not only writing but sophistication and legal thought. I mean, the Code of Hammurabi discovery should have totally derailed the JEPD theory. And the same thing with what Charles Ryrie is speaking of here. There is existence of a flourishing civilization and warfare in the very time period that we're talking about. And what is happening today is they're so interested in discrediting the Bible, they're hiding certain pieces of evidence from you. And yet those pieces of evidence are there. And so I bring that to your attention because your children and your grandchildren sitting under their learned professors and teachers and watching all of these things on YouTube and watching all of these things on cable television are actually going to come to you for the answer. I mean, what about that, Grandma, Grandpa? What about that, Mom and Dad? I mean, this is what I just heard on cable. Is this true? And you need to be in a position where you're equipping yourself and you need to be in a church that is involved in equipping you 
related to how to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. And so some of these things I bring to your attention just for that reason. So there's been a war. There's been a rescue operation. War, verses 1 through 12. Rescue operation, verses 13 through 16. And now we come to the very end of the chapter where we have Abram, who is a victor, interacting with two kings. First, he interacts with the king of Solomon, uh, excuse me, Sodom, verse 17. Second, he, secondly, he interacts with the king of Salem, verses 18 through 20. And then third, he interacts again with the king of Sodom, verses 21 through 24. And so what happens here? Notice Abram's interaction with the king of Sodom. Notice, if you will, Genesis chapter 14, and notice, if you will, verse 17. Then after his return from the defeat of uh, Kedor La Omar, I think Ed's pronunciation, I think, is the one trusted here, not mine. And the kings that were with him, the kings of Sodom went out to meet him, or the king of Sodom, rather, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. So essentially what happens here is you have the timing of this. The timing is after the defeat of the king of Elam. Remember, it was the king of Elam that sort of with his eastern confederacy went upwards there roughly to the Damascus area and sort of followed a north-south trajectory and got down there to the bottom and sort of circled back up and in the process defeated these kings here called the Valley of the Jordan or the Circle of the Jordan, better said. So it was four against five. And that's where those kings that I have circled there were captured. And that's when Lot was taken into captivity. And he would have spent the rest of his life as a slave. And Lot was taken into captivity because he, Genesis 13, verse 13, was pitching his tent. Actually, Genesis 13, verses 12 and 13, pitching his tent towards Sodom. And he was beginning to dwell there. So he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he was taken into captivity. And Abram, with his ragtag force as a 75-year-old man, rescued Lot. A stunning, a stunning victory. So when Abram meets these kings, first the king of Sodom and then a little bit later the king of Salem, this takes place right after the defeat of this eastern power. Uh, it mentions here only the king of Elam because he was probably the leader of that eastern confederacy. It says here the king of Sodom went out to meet him. That would be Abram. You say, well, I thought the king of Sodom got killed back in uh, Genesis 14 and verse 10 as a consequence of this eastern invasion. And the truth of the matter is, yes, he did get killed. So obviously this would be a new king, a replacement king. And Abram goes to this place called the Valley of Shaveh, if I'm pronouncing that right, and meets the king of Sodom. Where is this particular 
valley, you see I've got it circled there. It's basically a valley called the Kidron Valley, sometimes called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And it's basically a wadi, which basically means a river emptying into the Dead Sea. And so this is where the victory occurred. And so the king of Sodom comes out now to meet Abram. And we're going to hear more about the conversation or interaction between Abram and the king of of Sodom in verses 18, uh, excuse me, no, verse 21 through 24. So the discussion leaves Abram's interaction with the king of Sodom and moves to verses 18 through 20, where it's Abram's interaction now with the king of Salem. So notice, if you will, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God the Most High. So before Abram deals with the king of of Sodom, he deals first with this king called the king of Salem. Well, who is this king of Salem? Well, he has a name. His name is Melchizedek. Melchizedek in Hebrew just means king of righteousness. We know his name and we know that he was an actual king and he actually ruled over a particular city called Salem. Boy, that kind of rings a bell. uh, Salem kind of sounds like Jerusalem, doesn't it? So this is what we believe the first reference to Jerusalem in the entire Bible. In fact, over in uh, Psalm 78, excuse me, Psalm 76, verse 2, it equates Salem with Zion. It says over in Psalm 76, verse 2, his tabernacle is in Salem, his dwelling place also in Zion. So Zion is the equivalent of Salem, the first reference to Jerusalem in the entire Bible. Now, Jerusalem at this time was not a Jewish city. It was not a Hebrew city. In fact, the nation of Israel is just barely getting off the ground at this point. In fact, Jerusalem would be under the control of a group of people called the Jebusites. The Jebusites are mentioned all the way into the time of the book of Joshua, Joshua 15, verse 63, as ruling over this city of Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem would not become a Hebrew or Jewish capital until the time of who? Until the time of David, which would be about a thousand years after these events that we're reading about transpired. Jerusalem is not going to become the capital, the capital of undivided Israel until 2 Samuel chapter 5, under the time of David. Right now, it's what would become a Jebusite, Canaanite city. And we go on with our description here of this man, Melchizedek, and we learn that he's a priest. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. So he was not a 
pagan priest. He was a godly priest. Now, this is the first mention of the word priest in the entire Bible. Uh, what is a priest? A priest is basically an intermediary, if you will, between God and man. Jesus, of course, being our ultimate high priest, because he is the only one qualified to be our intermediary between God and man, because he is the unique God-man. Who better to mediate the two than Jesus Christ himself? But this is the first reference to priest in the entire Bible. He is not a pagan priest. He is called a priest of the Most High. So this is very interesting because what we start to learn here is that there were others outside of Abram's household that were believers. Or else this man who had no contact with Abram until this point in time would not have been called a priest of the Most High. So how did this man Melchizedek learn the truth? Well, the truth is disclosed for the first time in Genesis 3, verse 15. There's coming a Messiah from the seed of the woman. And as we've journeyed through the book of Genesis, we learn that through Noah's son Shem, this Messiah would come. And so many, many people in this part of the world particularly knew that a Messiah was coming. They learned about it most probably through the lineage of Shem. And this is where this man, Melchizedek, who's not just a priest, but the priest of the Most High, that's probably how he became a believer in the promises of God. You'll notice that this man, Melchizedek, is called a priest of the Most High God. The Hebrew for Most High God is El Elyon. And it is used only four times, actually five times in the Bible. Four of the five usages of this unique Hebrew term occur right here in our verses. Uh, the only other time it's used is over in Psalm 78, verse 35, where God is called the Most High God. Generally, when God is referred to, he's just called the Most High. He's not called the Most High God, El Elyon. And here it's used not just for the first time, but it's used um, four times just within the span of a few Verses, And so this was a priest who was not just a priest of the Most High, but the priest of the Most High God. He was somebody who obviously had a knowledge of the truth through the descendants of Shem. And you'll notice what this man does, Melchizedek, verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, he's the king and priest of Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the Most High God. Now I realize we're going to be celebrating communion next week, but this has nothing to do with the Lord's table. Why does this have nothing to do with the Lord's table? Because even though it says bread and wine, the Lord's table would not be implemented for another 2,000 years. The Lord's table as a memorial for what Christ did for us on the cross 
2,000 years ago is something that would exist for the church, and the church at this particular point doesn't exist yet. There, there, there is no knowledge of the church here. There is no understanding of the church. God is barely bringing into existence a very special nation, the nation of Israel. In fact, when you read the Gospels, Jesus makes this statement, I will build my church. All the way late into the time of Christ, you'll notice that the verb build is in the future tense, and that's probably the first revelation of the church in the entire Bible. So it's very tempting to take communion, the Lord's table, which, by the way, is implemented by Christ in the upper room, and read it back into this passage, but it really doesn't belong there. Don't worry, the Lord's table is going to be implemented, but that's only post cross. Luke 22 verses 19 and 20 says, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is for, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after they had eaten saying this cup, which is, this is the cup, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That revelation is coming. The revelation of the church is coming, but it's not found here. You say, well, then if that, this is not the communion service, can you give us the mystical secret interpretation of the priest king of Salem coming to Abram and giving him bread and wine? Here's the mystical interpretation. You ready? The king priest of Salem came to Abram and ministered to him by giving him bread and wine. That's all it says. Uh, Not exactly the most exciting sermon you've ever heard in your life, but we're really not in a position here to start rewriting the Bible uh, to make it sound and say things that really it's not saying. So here is this priest and king basically ministering to Abram's physical needs. Bread and wine. Why? Because he had just come out of warfare. He had just come out of conflict. Now, the big discussion here with this man, Melchizedek, coming from Jerusalem is people think that this is a theophany. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear the word Christophany. What is that? It's Christ before the manger. Pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ. Are there pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? You can bet your bottom dollar that there are. One of the clearest ones to my mind is in Joshua chapter 5 verses 13 through 15 where Joshua is seeking to enter the land and he's in the land and he's going out to battle and it talks about a angelic messenger that was there as this was happening and it says in Joshua chapter 5 verse 14 and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and the angelic being there receives the worship now, when that happens, you know you're not dealing with an ordinary angel. You're dealing with what arguably is the angel of the Lord, 
a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because a true run-of-the-mill angel will never receive worship. In fact, it's interesting that John, in his little epistle in 1 John 5, verse 21, signs off and he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And John didn't practice his own advice because when he was on the island of Patmos and, you know, received a vision from God coming from Jesus to an angel to John that we call the book of Revelation, John starts to worship the angel. And the angel says, knock it off. I'm just a fellow servant. That happens not once, but it happens twice. You'll find it in Revelation 19, verse 10. It says, then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You think John would have learned his lesson? He does not because in Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, it says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, the brethren, the the prophets, and those who heed the words of this book, worship God. And that is actually a pretty good practice for us to get into. Because when you discover you have spiritual gifts and you discover that God is actually using your spiritual gifts to bless people and to reach people, people will have a tendency to give you all the credit. And in human pride, it's very tempting to say, yeah, you know, my sermon was pretty good, wasn't it? You know, I stayed up late and I worked hard on it and I was on Logos and I found all this stuff and, you know, you know, isn't it kind of great? In fact, in fact, I'll, I'll tell you a story. I was in Albuquerque and I was in one of those mindsets. I was in a hotel room. I was sticking around for an afternoon meeting and I had just spoken at what I think is probably the second largest church in Albuquerque. And everybody just said, oh, Pastor Woods, that was just uh, phenomenal. And you, you just blessed my life. And I was in one of those moods where, you know, Lord, you're really lucky that I'm on your team. <laughs> I mean, what, what would you do without me, Lord? And I was, and I was in my hotel and I have these black shoes that you can you know, you can see when I'm walking around. And so when the drapes are shut, you can't see the shoes. And I literally tripped as I was thinking this, I literally tripped right over the shoes. I went right into a lamp and had I not caught myself, I could have done, you know, very severe eye injury. And that, that happened to me the moment I was thinking, Lord, aren't you lucky to have me on your team? And so when you start to think like that, the Lord has a way of getting our attention. He was basically saying to me, you are such an idiot. 
you can't even walk across a hotel room without getting yourself injured. I mean, the only reason I use you is because, you know, I don't have anything better to do, quite frankly. And after all, in the Old Testament, I used a donkey. Or the translation is a jackass. I used a jackass, so I can use you too. So just keep that in mind. But the truth of the matter is, John, he starts giving the angel all the credit, and the angel says, knock it off. And that's really the right way when people want to gush over you and praise you and all this kind of stuff. You just say, well, praise the Lord. You just direct the attention back to God where it belongs, and then maybe God will spare you of tripping over your own shoes in the middle of a hotel room. So John worships the angel. The angel says, knock it off. And you'll notice in Joshua 5 that this angel doesn't say that. He doesn't say worship God. Why is that? Because that's an example of a theophany, a Christophany, where it's not just an angel, it's the angel of the Lord. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. There are those in the Bible. If you want a wonderful book on this that's readable but biblically accurate, I recommend the book by Dr. Ron Rhodes entitled Christ Before the Manger. Uh, It'll take you to every single reference where this kind of phenomenon takes place. And it's a great thing to study this time of the year as we're getting ready for Christmas and celebrating the birth of Jesus. And sometimes we forget that Jesus is active all the way through the Old Testament. So what people do when they discover the reality of theophanies is they want to read it everywhere into the Bible. Everything you see is Jesus, they say. Jesus is hiding under every rock and tree, you know, in the Old Testament. And that is what I would call theophany override. You you suddenly don't start saying, okay, it's in Joshua 5, so I'm going to find it here in Genesis 14. So many, many people will take Genesis 14 and this reference to Melchizedek, they'll take that as a theophany or a Christophany. They largely do it from the book of Hebrews, where the author of the book of Hebrews, particularly in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, skillfully reaches back into history and uses Melchizedek as a type, typology, foreshadowing, of the high priestly ministry of Jesus which is a ministry that is higher than Aaron's because it's after the order of who? Melchizedek. People say, after all, he was ruling in Jerusalem. That sounds like what Jesus will do one day. He's called the king and priest of peace and righteousness. That kind of sounds like Jesus. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. He's king and priest. Only Jesus can be both. After all, the book of Hebrews says Melchizedek had no beginning and ending. And after all, he brought bread and wine. That's the communion service. And he's a priest of the Most High. So Melchizedek equals a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I don't think this is a case where you can call Melchizedek a theophany. I think he was a real person that lived 
that the author of Hebrews reaches back to to build typology. That's its only purpose. Because when it says in the book of Hebrews he had no genealogy, what it's really saying is he had no documented genealogy that people could observe. The book of Hebrews does not call Melchizedek the son of God. It calls him like the son of God. And theophanies typically bring a message from God to man. That doesn't happen here. And theophanies don't rule over a particular geopolitical place. This man, Melchizedek, is ruling as king-priest over a particular city called the city of Jerusalem. Arnold Fruchtenbaum puts it as follows. While many have taught that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate Christ, this simply cannot be. This was not a theophany because theophanies came and went. They appeared, gave their proclamation, message, or commandment, and then disappeared. Theophanies never held an office here on the earth. Here Melchizedek holds two offices, that of king, that of priest. Again, he was not a theophany. He was only a type for several reasons. First, theophanies merely appeared and disappeared, not holding an earthly office like king or priest. Secondly, Hebrews 5 verse 1 begins listing several prerequisites for a priesthood, making the point that a priest had to be a human. The Messiah did not become human until the Incarnation. So for Melchizedek first to be a priest, he first had to be human. Third, Hebrews states that he was like Son of God, not that he was the Son of God. He was made like unto the Son of God. Therefore, there is no biblical basis for making Melchizedek a theophany or the pre-incarnate Christ. Melchizedek was a human being who was said to be a type of the Messiah in that he was both king and priest. When the book of Hebrews mentions that he had no genealogy, no father or mother, the main point of the author of Hebrews is that there is no record of the genealogy for Melchizedek, no mention of a father or mother either. It does not say that he did not have one, only that there is no record of it. The point Hebrews is making is that the correct genealogy was vital for the Levitical priesthood. Unless one could prove that he was a descendant of Aaron, he could not serve as a priest under the Levitical law. However, the Melchizedekian priesthood was not based upon descent, but it was based strictly on divine appointment. When Hebrews states neither beginning nor end, it does not say he did not have one. It just means that there is no beginning or end of his priesthood in the biblical record. The typology being drawn is that of a continuous priesthood, as is the case with Jesus Christ. He has another slide there for explanation, which I'll let you read on your own. The author of Hebrews is not saying that Melchizedek is Jesus. What he's doing is he's reaching back in history and finding an actual king that resembled Jesus and skillfully using it in his argument to show that Christ brought in a priesthood higher than Aaron's 
because it was patterned after the priesthood of Melchizedek. What is interesting, though, is this man, Melchizedek, who was an actual person, not a theophany, blesses Abram. And you see that blessing being dispensed there in verse 19. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, God of the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Melchizedek, a real person, recognized something unusual in Abram. He recognized that the God that was with him, Melchizedek, was also with Abram. He recognized Abram as a fellow servant of the Most High God. In fact, here you'll see a repetition of that Hebrew expression, El Elyon, Most High God. And as Melchizedek is blessing a fellow servant, he also calls God the possessor of heaven and earth. That's a description, of course, that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where we learn in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 24, God says, Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Do we understand that the God that we serve as Christians is the one who spoke and the heavens and the earth leapt into existence? I mean, if we really believe that, then why are we so uptight about our problems? Why are we so uptight about difficulties that we have, crises that we see? Do we not understand exactly who it is we're connected to? We are connected to the one, El Elyon, Most High God, who is the very possessor of heavens and earth. And if God is the possessor of heavens and earth, he's also in possession of your employment situation, your family friction this time of the year, your health concern. I mean, whatever it is that's nagging you, plaguing you, bothering you, it's just a matter of looking at that through the lens of God, who is the most high God, who is the very possessor of heavens and earth. Boy, we would save ourselves a lot of anxiety if we started to look at life situations through that lens. We now have this man, Melchizedek, blessing God. First he blesses Abram, now he blesses God. It says, and blessed be God the Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So you'll notice that Melchizedek doesn't just dwell on Abram's military success because he understands that Abram just had that military success because God is the one that gave it to him. And as a fellow servant of God, he could recognize that. He could see it for what it is. You'll notice again the repetition of El Elyon, Most High God. And he recognized God as Abram's deliverer. Notice what it says there in verse 20. Who has delivered your enemies into your hands. You know what that is, folks? That's salvation. 
What did Jonah say in the belly of the fish before he was vomited out onto dry land? He said salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is not just being delivered from sin's penalty through the blood of Jesus Christ by faith alone in Christ alone. That is a ultimate form of salvation, but it's deliverance from one's enemies. It's deliverance from being in the belly of the fish. It's deliverance from inflation. It's deliverance from the job or the jab. It's deliverance from health scares and health concerns. And what you discover as you walk with the Lord, because salvation is of the Lord, is you start to be delivered from a lot of things in God's way and God's timing. I I can't count the number of times as a Christian, God has bailed me out of circumstances which I saw absolutely no way out of. This is the kind of thing that Abram was up against and the Lord delivered him. Salvation is of the Lord. And if God provided your ultimate salvation, the deliverance from sin's penalties, your employment situation, inflation, health concerns, relational conflict, whatever it is, I mean, that's just the small stuff. I mean, just think of it from the greater to the lesser. If God already gave you the greater, isn't he going to help you with the lesser? And that's what this fellow servant Melchizedek is is acknowledging that just happened in Abram's life. A, A deliverance from a military conflict that he had absolutely no business winning. Salvation is of the Lord. And now what does this man Abram do? He pays tithes. Uh oh. He pays tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek receives tithes from Abram. It's at the very end of verse 20. It says he gave him a tenth of all. Now the he there is Abram paying the tithe to Melchizedek. It's not as clear here, but it's crystal clear in Hebrews 7 verse 4, recounting the same story. And it says, now observe how this great man was to whom Abram, the patriarch, gave a tenth of choice, his choicest spoils. Which raises a very interesting question. That's why I've entitled this sermon, Giving God's Way, is this whole issue of tithing. Now, you'll notice that when I bring up this issue of tithing and this issue of money, uh, I do it when it's in the context of a verse-by-verse teaching. We have no agenda at this church of being a shakedown operation where every single sermon you hear somehow has something to do with we need to give more because we need to build this or build that. There's no agenda like that here. God has provided for this church many times over. In fact, it's stunning how the Lord has provided for this church above and beyond anything anticipated in this year. And this year's not even over yet. I mean, I don't know even like talking about things like this because I don't want to discourage giving. I mean, if I tell people how well we're doing, maybe they won't give anymore. But the truth of the matter is this church beat its budget from last year 
back in September. In other words, all the money that came in in 2020 has already come in in the year 2021, and it keeps coming in. Um, what, what, what do you attribute that to? You attribute that to the fact that people are being blessed, and without being shaken down, they just give as God has purposed in their hearts. You know, there's, there's pastors, they get up in front of their flocks, and they say this, at this time, we're going to take the offering. That always has bothered me. It, it gives you the impression that God is like reaching out and just ripping goods out of people's wallets and so forth. We, we don't take the offering. We receive the offering. And by the way, you probably noticed at this church, we don't even pass a plate. Why, why do we not do that? Because people shouldn't feel under duress and compulsion to give when everybody's looking at them. Now, I realize other churches do it differently, and that's fine. That's between him and the, them and the Lord, but our church operates differently. We have two offering boxes in the back. They're hardly ever mentioned. No one's going to put neon lights on them as you walk out. Because we believe that giving is a matter of privacy between people and God. And as people are blessed, they just have a natural desire to give. In fact, we used to make it so hard to give in this church. We used to just hide our PayPal account where you had to just go through a maze to find it. And finally, we reached the conclusion that, well, why are we making it so difficult when people, when they're blessed, naturally want to give? I mean, why would we deprive them of the right that they have to give if they want to give? And it was also overloading our staff with a bunch of emails. I can't find the PayPal account. So we have a very low um, emphasis here on finances. Finances is God's thing. You know, a lot of ministries, they make it sound like, gosh, if you don't give this month or if you don't give this week or if you don't give today, God is going to go out of business. You know, poor God, he doesn't have two nickels to rub together. When the fact of the matter, we just read that he's the possessor of the heavens and the earth. I mean, if God is involved with any ministry, there shouldn't have to be this huge emphasis on money, 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 giving, giving, giving. You know, some of them that say, gosh, if we don't get money, we're going to go off the air. I, I wish they would go off the air, quite frankly, because <laughs> they're, they're more of an annoyance and a nuisance than, you know, someone or a group that wants to actually teach, teach truth. So here you get into this question of giving where Abram gave a tenth of his spoils from war to this man, Melchizedek. So is tithing something that the New Testament Christian is supposed to do? Tithing, of course, giving the first 10% of your income unto the Lord. Now, the response to that is tithing is part of the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was given to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. That's where tithing comes from. And the Mosaic Law would not be given until six centuries later. And in fact, if you want to put the church under that system, you can't just teach tithing because there were three tithes, two annually, one every third year. And so your average Israelite was actually giving 23 and a third percent of their income to the Lord. 
A lot of churches will put you under that system by teaching the Malachi blessing. Great fundraising tool, by the way. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see if I will not rebuke the devourer and pour out so great a blessing on you that you don't have room to receive it. The problem with that is you're using Malachi, which concerns the dispensation of the law, not the age of the church. The Mosaic law was given to one nation, the nation of Israel. Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20 says he declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinance to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. As for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. You put the church under the doctrine of tithing as found in the Mosaic law. You're putting the church under a legal system that was only intended for one nation, the nation of Israel. Now, the counter argument to that is, well, this precedes the law of Moses. This is six centuries roughly before the law of Moses. Abram tithed, so we should tithe also. In fact, you may not know this, but I, when I graduated from seminary, I was within a millimeter of heading to a very well-known group and being a professor there in Lynchburg, Virginia. And the deal breaker on that was they wanted to know my position on tithing because that particular ministry taught tithing. The founder of that ministry taught tithing and they did not want professors in their school teaching you what I'm saying, that tithing is for Israel and not for the church. And that's why I ended up here in Houston because <laughs> nobody else wanted me because I kept... <laughs> I kept quoting the Bible. But as I was involved with this long email conversation with the the higher-ups there, um, they would come back with with Abram. Abram tithed pre-Mosaic law, so we should tithe as well, right? Arnold Fruchtenbaum rides to my rescue here. He says in verse 20, B is is Abram's response to Melchizedek. He gave him a tenth of all. Abram is again proving to be a blessing to others. What should be noted here, however, is that Abram is giving a tenth of the spoils of war to the Lord or to Melchizedek, not his income. Many have used this passage to try to claim that tithing was an old, was an Old Testament law even before the Mosaic law. And they do this because they recognize that the Mosaic law is no longer in effect. If, therefore, they want to teach tithing, they have to have a different basis for tithing. And so they often refer to this event. However, one should note the following points. First, there was no command for Abram to do so. God didn't say, okay, Abram, fork it over. It's just something he did on his own. Abram did it voluntarily. Secondly, this was a one-time event. There's no record of him doing it repeatedly. Third, this was not even a tithe from his income. There's no record that Abram gave a tenth 
of the income he received from all the wealth he had gained uh, that was gifted to him by Pharaoh, for example, in Genesis 12. This this is one-tenth from the spoils of war, and the spoils originally belonged to others anyway. I mean, did Abram tithe? Yes, he did. Why did he tithe? That's what he wanted to do. Is that some kind of binding, mandatory commandment for everyone to follow today? No, no, it's not. So in the New Testament, we are put under no numerical requirement concerning what to give. Now, this ruins, I'm an, I understand what I'm doing here. I'm undoing countless fundraising projects. But this is Sugarland Bible Church. This is not Sugarland Fundraising Enterprises. Bible is our middle name. We follow what the Bible says. And you can study the New Testament epistles all you want, and you'll never find a number given concerning what you are to give unto the Lord in the church age. What you'll find are adverbs. Adverbs modify a verb. They describe a verb. In this case, the verb is giving. Well, how are we to give? I want a number, Lord. The Lord says, I'm not going to give you a number. What I'm going to give you, though, is adverbs that you should follow as you contemplate giving. By the way, you'll find all of these in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. One of the greatest passages or chapters on the whole issue of giving and 10% or 23 and a third percent is not even mentioned. What you'll find mentioned are adverbs. Give secretly. When you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Don't demand that they, you know, put a brick in the ground with your name on it or a building named after you. Give a gift secretly. Don't, don't do it with trumpets. And pizzazz, don't let everybody know you're doing it because don't you want your reward from God rather than man? I mean, if everybody sits around and applauds you when it comes time for you to be rewarded at the Bama Seat Judgment of Christ, the Lord says, well, you already got your reward. Give proportionally. Give as God has prospered you. Quite frankly, there are some people that should not be giving 10% because they're dangerously in debt. And the Bible says, if you don't pay down your debts, you're a thief. There are other people that are walking, as we like to say, in high cotton. And they ought to be giving far more than 10%. Because the Bible, New Testament, does not give you a number. It gives you adverbs. Give sacrificially. I mean, isn't that what impressed Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, where all of the rich were coming in and putting all of these huge gifts into the the offering, and a little old widow puts in the widow's might, and Jesus calls his disciples over, and he says, you know, she's given more than everybody else. Well, why is that? Because she gave to the point of sacrifice. She gave to the point where it actually could potentially hurt her and she had to trust the Lord. Give sacrificially. Give joyfully. You know, when you go to a church and it's pressure, 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 
duress all of the time about giving, you have a situation where people really aren't doing it joyfully. They're doing it grudgingly. You ought to be joyful that God has even given you the means and the ability to do it. Give worshipfully. Give as if this is part of your worship unto the Lord. This is what you find in the New Testament. It's called being under grace rather than being under law. And my goodness, folks, let's get this one straight. Don't give to get. Don't give to be blessed. You run into so many people and I'm giving, I'm giving. Why are you doing it? I want to be blessed. Well, should I tithe on my gross or my net? Well, do you want to be blessed on your gross or your net? It's that kind of mentality. (laughs) We don't give, particularly in this age of the church, to get blessed. We give because we're already what? blessed. That's what the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with, what's the next word there? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Oh Lord, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. The Lord's saying, what else do you want? Your account is already maxed out. You give because you have been blessed. You don't give to get blessed. Giving, uh, giving God's way. Now Abram begins to interact with the king of Sodom. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. The king of Sodom actually gives Abram an offer for the people and the wealth that he had captured Give me the people and you can keep the goods. Who are the people? Prisoners of war that Abram captured, probably back in verse 11. The fact of the matter is this offering or this offer means nothing because of the right of conquest. Abram didn't have to give up anything here. And then you have Abram's response to this offer from the king of Sodom. Abram has a threefold response. First, notice Abram's oath, verse 22. This is something Abram said in his heart before he even went to battle. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord, God most high, there's El Elyon again, by the way, possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, before the conflict ever started, I purposed in my heart to do something. And that's when to develop convictions. You don't develop convictions in the heat of battle. What you say is before the battle even starts, here's my stand. Because that way you won't be tempted to compromise your positions in the heat of battle because they didn't originate because you were in the heat of battle. They originated through logical thought ahead of time. And what is the content of this oath that's given right there in verse 23? Look at this. This is stunning. That I, Abram is speaking to the king of Sodom, will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours 
for fear you would say that I have made Abram rich. I'm not taking anything from you. Why? Because I didn't, I don't want you to think you made me rich. You know who made me rich? God made me rich. And what you see here is Abram, watch this very carefully, disentangling himself from the king of Sodom. Just like he disentangled himself from Lot in the prior chapter when he said, Lot, the land that you take, I'll take the opposite. This is a principle that's almost never taught today, but it's the principle or the biblical basis of ecclesiastical separation. You do not align yourself with people and with groups and with enterprises that don't share your core biblical values. You don't get in bed with the Mormons. You don't get in bed with the Roman Catholic Church. You don't get in bed with the Jehovah's Witnesses. When the different denominations that don't hold to our convictions come to this church and say, can we rent your building for this or can we rent your building for that? Our answer politely is thank you, but no thank you. Because we're not into forming ecumenical alliances with groups that don't agree with our convictions concerning the Bible. We separate ourselves. Now, the religious world of the community is not going to stand up and give you a great big applause for doing that. Yet it's exactly what the Bible says. I wish I had time to show you all of these verses calling for ecclesiastical separation in the New Testament. One of the most prominent is 2 John 7 through 11, which says, if someone denies the deity of Christ and the incarnation of Christ, you do not invite them into your house. 2 John 7 through 11. It doesn't mean you leave the Jehovah's Witnesses on the porch in the middle of the Houston summer and don't offer them a glass of lemonade. That's not what it's talking about. The house is where church was conducted in the first century. You don't let them come in to your pulpit and take control. You don't let them pass out literature in your foyer or foyer or whatever it's called. You don't let the Muslims, and they've tried to do this here, by the way, come in and put out their gift bags, which, by the way, look very suspiciously similar to our gift bags. And we found a few of those around here where it looks like it's one of our gift bags, but, oh, it's not because it's got a Quran in it and an invitation saying, come to our community service and learn more about Islam. They show up here with their garb, mask, all that stuff. Very nice, very smiley. I'm sorry, but you just believe differently than we do. We're practicing ecclesiastical separation because Second John 7 through 11 says, do not allow such people into your house. That is what Abram is doing here. And now Abram is in a position to be blessed by God. Because he separated himself. 
Because what's coming in Genesis 15, listen to me very carefully, is the most important chapter in the whole Bible. If you can understand Genesis 15, you'll understand the whole Bible. And what precedes the revelation in Genesis 15 is Abram doing two acts of what we might call ecclesiastical separation in Genesis 13 and Genesis 14. Come out from among them and be ye what? Separate. God is not interested in all of these interfaith alliances. He's also not interested in interfaith dialogue. You know, everybody's dialoguing with everybody today. It's almost like Jesus said, go into all the world and dialogue. (laughs) When you dialogue with a Muslim, you have to understand this, that the game is rigged before you even sit down to the table and dialogue because they're allowed to lie. It's called taqiyah. You're not because you're bound by New Testament revelation, which says don't don't lie. So the whole game of interfaith dialogue is not designed for the two of you to meet in the middle somewhere. It's designed to lower your defenses to their false doctrine. And so Abram here practices separation. He separates himself from the king of uh, the king of Sodom. He says, you know what, all this money, you you can have it. You can take it. Because I don't want all this money that I gained through the right of conquest, you can have. Because I don't want you to think that you made me rich. You didn't make me rich. God made me rich. And I don't want to entangle myself with you because I want the blessings of God on my life. And by the way, this money that I gained through warfare, um, I don't need it anyway, because who's my provider? God is. Because after all, he's the possessor of heaven and earth. Do you see how this man is different than he was in chapter 12? Remember in chapter 12, there was a famine, so he got scared and went to Egypt. Now he's in a position where he's able to say no to finances that would illicitly connect him with Sodom. That's the goal of our Christian life. Not that we're the person we are supposed to be or should be. But thank God I'm not the man I used to be. I can now trust God through different problems. Where Abram is saying I couldn't do that in chapter 12. There's growth in his life. Abram says, I just have a couple of exceptions, though. These are very unselfish exceptions. Verse 24, I will take nothing except the young man, young men who have eaten. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Anner, Eschol, and Mamre, let them take their share. So I don't, you can have the people even though I don't have to give them back. You can have the spoils of war. But very unselfishly, he says, you know what, what my men have already eaten. They should get that. And I think he's referring to the 318 men that were with him. And beyond that, there's Anner, Eskel, and Mamre. They should have spoils since they participated in the invasion with me. 
Other than that, I don't want anything. I don't want anything for personal wealth. I don't want anything for personal aggrandizement. You take it all, and you're seeing a man growing by leaps and bounds. You're also seeing, and we'll end with this, the outworking of God's promise to bless those who bless Israel. Didn't God say that in Genesis 12:3? I will bless those who bless you. Notice these three brothers are blessed financially. Melchizedek is blessed because he received tithes. But what else does God say? I will, Genesis 12:3, curse those who what? Curse you. You know who got cursed here? The four kings from the east. God cursed them in kind. They thought they were cursing this part of the world by causing a military conflict and conquest. But they, in the end, were cursed by military conquest themselves by a 75-year-old man. Wow. What an outworking of what God said in Genesis 12. So we've seen war, we've seen rescue, we've seen the interaction with two kings, and I really strongly encourage you to be here next week because we're going to talk about the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. Genesis 15, the foundation of the whole Bible. And, you know, if you're here today and you don't know Christ personally... Uh, This is all a bunch of Bible information that likely just went right over your head. And the reason you don't understand it is you don't have the Holy Spirit in you yet. So you're showing up to do a religious routine. The truth of the matter is, unless a man is born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And how does a person become born of the Spirit? They trust in the provision of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. They trust in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension for their eternity, for the safekeeping of their souls, and for all for the sin that they have committed against a holy God. They trust in that, and in a nanosecond, they receive the gift of life or eternal life. There's not multiple conditions that have to be satisfied to receive this gift. There's a single condition. You come under the conviction of the Spirit, you hear the gospel, and then you respond by way of volition, by trusting in what Jesus did. One step. Trusting is another word for saying believing in the Bible. It's not enough to know about Jesus. You have to trust in what Jesus did for you. And as I'm speaking, as the Spirit places people under the sound of my voice, under conviction, you can become a Christian right now, not by giving money, joining a church, walking an aisle, even praying a prayer. It's just a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where you trust in His provision. You stop trusting in everything else for your eternity, but you trust in what he has done for you. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for this ancient historical happenstance and the things that it speaks to in our lives. Help us to 
walk these things out this week. Help us to keep you first and foremost on our thoughts in this very special time of the year where we not only gave thanks last week, but looking forward to celebrating the advent of your son into the world coming up on Christmas. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.